Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Cypherskin and a very special guest, Rowan Francis, who is a consultant cardiologist with a sub-specialization in YouTube, who is also doing a PhD at University College London. Rowan, thanks for joining us. Uh, No, I'm very uh, flattered and and honored to be invited. Uh, Delight to be here. You are our first cardiologist to come on the show. So I'm going to, I'm going to start with, and and surely the last, possibly the last, (laughs) just, just ruin the category forever. Let's go straight to the basement. We're going to start, James. Um, as you may know, um, both myself and James have a, somewhat of a of a background in in elements of, of cardiology. So I'm going to give um, James a very quick um, trivia question to see if he knows the answer to this. I know you know the answer to this, Rowan, but I'm going to give um, give James a quick trivia question, looking at the history. So, James, as you know, y- mm. you know the name given to ambulatory cardiac monitors. What are they called? They're called halter monitors after the guy. H-O-L-T-E-R. Yeah, but do you know who the co-inventor was? Oh, um, yeah, there's two people on the paper. Starts with B. Starts with B? No. Well. Fuck. Go on then. Glasscock. We could have been calling on Glasscock monitors. (laughs) We have little red hats for that in the US. Glasscock (laughs) monitors. Yeah, it gives you a categorical variable. (laughs) I had yes, uh, sorry. That is that is one of those things that I have been told, and now will promptly forget again. Thank you so much, Daniel. There we go. go. All this trouble to get a guest who's finally got his all his all his own teeth and intelligent things to say, and you're starting off with cock jerks. <laughs> we're starting. We're, we're we're starting strong. Okay, R- Rowan. I want to ask you. Um, one of the things you you talk a lot about on on social media. You're on social media a lot. Um, Twitter. Uh, YouTube, we'll post the links to those channels in, in the show notes. One of the things you talk a lot about is misinformation. Misinformation that we hear a lot about this is a huge issue within social media. And I find that one of the biggest issues with misinformation is as, as soon as an expert will say something like, you know, X is dangerous, um, don't drink your piss, that's a bad idea. Somebody will say something like, oh, look, the, the experts don't want you to know this. I mean, it's a typical play. It's, it's pick something that experts will say is ridiculous, suggest an alternative, which, which is ridiculous, and it's fed off from there. How do we fight this? It seems to be it's almost, it's almost impossible that no matter what we do, something crazier and crazier is going to come up. How do we fight this type of medical misinformation? Wow, you're starting off with the, uh, the easy, small yeah, questions. Yeah, easy there, stuff aren't first. You? Yeah, always the easy stuff first. <laughs> um, I mean, I can certainly start by saying, you know, sort of what my approach is it, in that I, I think it's easy to get very overwhelmed with the amount of um, misinformation out there. And, you know, even on a more kind of philosophical kind of level, what can constitutes misinformation and, you know, what we're really referring to. But I think there are certain things we can all recognize as being complete madness. Um, and my t- approach is to try and focus on areas where I feel I can actually make a difference. And um, so, yes, there are certainly people saying drink your own piss and you know do, do completely mad things but i feel like um the majority of people that i interact with have, have got a bit of common sense and i think certainly as a medical professional i feel my um efforts are, are better used and more valuable trying to tackle the more subtle stuff that kind of hides in plain sight and that sometimes isn't classed as as misinformation and 
um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, this is very much stuff in you, both of your guys' wheelhouse and stuff you talk about on the podcast a lot, but a lot of really poor quality research, which is uh, held up as, as you know, people would not necessarily classify that as a misinformation, but I would put that all in the same category that there is just a really erratic level of, of the quality of evidence. So what I try to do in, in you know, um, my day job, but also in, in this kind of social media stuff that you mentioned, is to try and tackle things which maybe uh, aren't uh, complete out and out craziness. And um, I think if you're asking sort of how we can take it on at a societal level, you know, I think that that's really, really difficult. And the more I've learned about this and sort of read about the history of, of pseudoscience and efforts to combat it, the more I realize this is nothing new. And, and, you know, and there are all these famous quotes from people like Asimov about how there's this, this thread of anti-intellectualism running through society. And, you know, he said that a long time ago. But even going back to almost ancient Greece, you've got sim similar kinds of, of sentiments expressed that there, there is just a, a tendency for humans to um, be contrarian, maybe, or, or just disagree with with being told something. Um, and I don't know how we're gonna, how we, we are going to combat it. And obviously, you know, the pandemic has has completely made that question more prescient than ever. Yeah, God, yeah. Um, look, I, I I got hooked up. This is this is a little weird for me because um. We, we often have people on. Right? So I've listened to you two idiots before jabbering on about your science, ha having your opinions. And this is really weird for me because I've, I've seen most of your stuff for the simple reason that one of the first videos that you ever did on YouTube was called, Can You Be So Fit You Die? <laughs> right? Yeah. And any, anyone who's interested in, uh, I was interested in that because I have a, I have a friend who's a long distance cyclist and he's in his sixties and he's in a master cycling club, you know, and there's probably a dozen of these lads. Five of them have pacemakers. Mm, yeah. Because they've, yeah, you've just got, you've got so much change, so, so many changes. I mean, in, you know, we, maybe we can throw some research and the, the funny channels and the, what happens to the, the fucking uh, intrinsic regulation of the heart over time uh, in the show notes before we bore the ass of everyone with the audio version. Um, but that was, I think it was like the second video you did. It was maybe, maybe five years ago or something. And that was like, that was, that was catnip for me because I was still <laughs> actually working in the research area. And it got me interested in all the stuff that you'd made over time. And I feel like you sort of, you, you kind of discovered the stupidity of the world as a as a reasonable topic, because I mean let's go, let's go through a quick some of these because I mean I I love these if I had any talent and I didn't have the personality of a fucking muskox, um, <laughs> I'd I'd love to make videos like this. Oh, can you be so Can you be so fit that you die? That's that's fucking that's 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 a marvelous question, and that's why it has two million views. Um, what is getting in the water make you want to pee? That's another good physiology video. And dance and dance gonna love this one. The stupidest nerve in the human body. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is Which the stupidest is? nerve? So that was a video about the the recurrent laryngeal nerve, um, which takes this ridiculously circuitous route. Um, you know, from I love it. Uh, from the, the the head all the way down underneath the aorta back back up 
uh, all the way, you know, back up to your to your larynx, um, and it's um, a completely pointless route. You know, it, it's inefficient, and um, rec- you know, other things that can occur on the way, like if you've got a tumor there, even if it's nowhere near your throat, you can end up losing your voice from, say, a tumor in 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 the lung. And what this is is doesn't really make any sense un- unless you consider it in the context of evolution. So it was a little bit of a light-hearted poking fun at uh, creationists and and those who believe in intelligent design because they said, you know, there there really isn't any intelligence here if you're telling me that there's an intelligent designer because it's a very stupid route for this nerve to take. So that was yeah, just a, yeah. a little I bit. Think of- whoever did the New Jersey transit system um, probably probably did most of me most most of these things. I mean, Jesus Christ. He's like, can, can you remember? Can you remember if I'm Dan? If I made you draw out all the bits of the Vegas right now, could you do it? No, not accurately. No, of course. But you spent years thinking about the stupid bloody thing in context, right? Yeah. And the, and the, the design, the design is wretched. Um, they're, they're, they're laughing because the cat's fighting with me as per usual. The cat is the third Hertzie. I, I, I don't know if you knew that. So here's my, my, my broader point is is these are these are great. These are these are catnip. For people like us, can you legally buy a human skeleton? Fuck, I want to. Um, <laughs> babies are born with special survival skills. This is, uh, um, was Neil deGrasse Tyson right about medical errors? Spoiler, no, he fucking wasn't. He should stick to tweeting about how the stars in some film are irritating. Um, <laughs> there, there is a, there's, there's, I, I feel like this changed over time. I see the influence of, uh, gross anatomy, physiology, cardiology, and then, like a lot of other people, especially in the last year or two, you're sort of gradually getting dragged into the mm. the medical and scientific misinformation space. But and that's not unusual because I feel like it's happening to everyone yeah. that is doing anything in sort of psych on the oxygen for everything else. This was I mean, this was already pissing me off in early 2020. The oxygen for everything else is just being burned up by this flame of continually pushing back against drivel. All the time. Mm. So just context for people who are context of people who are listening. Um, how athletes fall for pseudoscience, what is the future for vaccines? Um, but you know, you, you you still manage you still manage to keep a sense of fun about this. A student drank two liters of energy drink in a day. This is what <laughs> happened. Uh, his piss went bright blue, presumably. I haven't watched <laughs> that one yet. So Yeah, so I mean I, I agree. There's there's been a, a change in yeah, I felt a kind of almost uh, obligation to kind of take on some of these. Yeah, but let's put all that to one side because, I mean, as in like everyone's seen it now. A lot of people who are listening to this probably do it. Where do you get regular topic ideas? Because we fight. We we fight about this all the time. You're there by yourself. And like 80% of these are winners for me. Where are they coming from? Oh, just just um, you know, if if I have an idea, I'll I'll jot it down in a in a Google document. It's uh, numbering one hundred and ninety three at the moment, so I've got no shortage of ideas. And uh, uh, often it's you know chats with people like yourself on Twitter, and I'll be like, oh, that's that's a cool thing. And 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 the ones I get round to doing often are not necessarily the ones I want to do most, but you know, like the the most recent video was about the recent pig heart transplant so I, I figured you know that's that's really in my wheelhouse and and topical so I'll go for that but um uh yeah I, you know I think covid uh 
in fact, one of my recent videos was why I've stopped making COVID videos because I'm just <laughs> I'm just kind of sick of it. And um, so I've got, yeah, I've got no shortage of of things I want to get stuck into. About the um, sports and um, and pseudoscience, I, th- I think a lot of this, um, <laughs> a lot of people were talking about this with Novak Djokovic and all that happened. And um, w- w- what was the story that um, a-, a naturopath put a piece of bread on his stomach and he was a, he was a celiac or something? I, I don't know, so- something wild. In, in terms, I mean, of- that's that's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in terms of that, what makes it what makes sports people different? Like, are, are they the same as 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 the average Joe when it comes to how they fall for pseudoscience, or is it the fact that we just tend to pay a lot of attention to them? What, what, what's the story there? No, I mean, I I did look at some some sort of uh, research in in this field, comparing kind of sports people with with the average Joe. And I think they're a self-selecting population, aren't they? So, you know, they're the kinds of people who are going to do everything they can to maximize their performance. And obviously, we're all familiar with drugs, uh, you know, and we, we talk about that a lot. And, and you know, I think that's been one of the big disillusions of my adult life is is really learning how prevalent drugs are in, in sport. And, and it's really, um, uh, you know, it, it sort of, disappointing but that's a, a kind of tangent but you know drugs are, are one aspect but there are loads every sphere of a of an athlete's life they're going to look for any little acquisition of, of marginal gain and um they do tend to to have uh, a very low bar for trying something that is is you know endorsed as potentially being helpful um and i think they've got a poor appreciation of of risk but you know that certainly doesn't make them unique. I think that's just a human trait uh, in general. Uh, but most of us aren't going to really consider doing some sort of weird therapy because you know we don't need to um, shave off zero point zero one. Yeah, uh, marginal gains have no value for us. Um, but but sports people, and there's an interesting sort of psychological element to it that that plays into the superstitious side where routine and um, you know sport athletes are. Are notorious for being very superstitious when it you know we're not i i kind of made a little fun of djokovic in in that video um just because he was he was the person in the public eye at the moment but you know even his contemporaries nadal's famous for positioning his water bottles in a very particular way on on the court and you know uh, greg rosetsky used to towel his face after every point and all, all these kinds of things in, in every sport and I think it's less to do with them actually believing in anything supernatural, but more just a case of getting in the zone. And again, they're uh, they're elite athletes, and 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 we're not. And you know, they are extremely good at achieving that zone. And I think if we talked about it in uh, scientific terms and all the kinds of phrases that are bandied about in in pop neuroscience, then probably it wouldn't have that superstitious sheen to it. But I think when you know, athletes often talk about um, uh, this from a, a less scientific point of view. It, it, it maybe is open to mockery, but essentially, they're they're just doing psychological, um, using psychological tools to get themselves in into the zone. So, yeah, so sports people are certainly susceptible to superstition, but probably that doesn't make them um, that much of an outlier. They're just the people who have achieved a great deal with these kinds of strategies. Are you a big sports guy? 
Yeah, I'm pretty into sport, yeah. Okay. You're obviously not strong, man. Which is, it's <laughs> almost... It's <laughs> almost <laughs> me physically. No, no, no not, not, because, not because you're six inches wide and presumably being a cardiologist with uh, children does not really give you the opportunity to do four hours worth of field training where you have to flip over a car. I was just... Uh, <laughs> I think I think you'd find yes, the, that, uh, the that's the only thing stopping me <laughs> is the kids. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. I think I think you would find the the attitude towards performance enhancement very, uh, very refreshing, because um, it's not against the rules. Mm, yeah, yeah. And and in a lot of a lot of countries, it doesn't really fall even into uh, the area where something's necessarily illegal. Mm. Um, and I always, I always found that a particularly interesting distinction um, is the, the the fact that because obviously, look, awesome performance enhancing drugs that work really well usually are super detectable, and the things that people have to try and do to get, especially through testing protocols, are titrated essentially in a way that you can actually get around how something's supposed to work, like cyclists using uh, testosterone patches overnight or fluid replacement, how they manage their biological passport over time to make sure they don't blow their, uh, don't blow their red blood cell count up. Um, and then, you know, they all get very scared when they start doing things like looking for plasticizers in the, um, in the, in the blood. It's, I find it absolutely, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating area. Um, I think but it's if soon, you want yeah. if you want em- if you want emotional release from it, you just definitely has to be strongman because I mean I've met people who are just like, hey, look, <laughs> I like this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the vial's got a bit of fur on it, but that's that's not necessarily a problem. Um, yeah, no, you know you're right, and and I think um, there is a lot of really interesting science and physiology here, and it it it, it all I you know I've often had conversations where we talk about what it would be like to just legalize everything and then see what we can actually get the human body to do. And, and um, the development of these compounds, it's always going to be a, you know, just the regulations chasing, chasing afterwards. You just modify a molecule in a, in a subtle way and that's not on the band list, but um, the, it's all behind closed doors and, and, um, under the table at the moment, but I would genuinely really like to know about the kind of research that's going on in these these areas, how they develop these compounds. I think it is is very fascinating stuff. I've always had an interest in kind of the extremes of human physiology, um, and if it wasn't a kind of illegal pursuit, that may well have been something I'd I'd like to have been involved with. You know, developing these kinds of things and seeing how they affect sporting performance. Um, but at the moment. And you know there is a lot of money in it, but you have to uh, you have to work kind of in the shadows. Um, so it's 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 genuinely re- very interesting uh, physiology. Mm. It's uh, it's it's very reminiscent without people wanting to admit it. It's very reminiscent of the research into psychedelics, where there's a there's a big grey zone where no one's entirely sure a lot of the time exactly what the line is. Um, and there's people working on dirt research, but it's quite underground and has been underground for ages. It's weird to think of it's weird to think of underground science. It's tremendously attractive now. I I don't have anyone to impress anymore. But um, you know, presumably you've got a medical license or something if you have to cut people open. And you're that kind of cardiologist, right? You're actually the literally uh, literally the chest shears 
new organs kind. What uh, what is what is what is what's what's a regular week like in the so my bread and butter's uh, angioplasty. So this is stenting. Right. So it's all keyhole yeah. keyhole stuff. Um, and so I'll you know that's that's kind of what I do most of the time. Um, and um, yeah, I, you know I I think that you're right in that I always that's my that's always my going to be my number one job. I'm full time, so I don't want to do anything silly to <laughs> to jeopardize that side of things. That's still paying the bills. Speaking yeah, of that, for sure. Um, quite often, uh, academics are given the advice. Some academics are given the advice. You shouldn't tweet. Um, th- think about whether someone on your tenure committee in in twenty years' time is going to go back through and and see something potentially embarrassing that you said. I would imagine that you get some sort of a lot of that same advice as a consultant, or that's given to other consultants or other medical professionals. Um, yet. You seem to be putting your middle finger up at that kind of advice when it comes to not not being active on social media. What sort of responses do you get from from your from your from your medical colleagues when it comes to to how, how active you are on on doing stuff on YouTube and doing stuff on Twitter? To be honest, you know, most of the time it's been pretty positive. Um, I, I you know I think you may well have written a a, a whole guide to a sort of academics um, use of Twitter, haven't you? But um, certainly in, in medicine, there there are some uh, I, I, I've, I've always been a big proponent of of the benefits of social media in in any kind of uh, academic or scientific career, and I, I think medicine's no exception. Um, yes, I have encountered some people who feel it's um, something that you, sh- you shouldn't shouldn't be engaging with. Uh, there are other people who have a presence on social media, but it, it's meticulously managed and extremely professional. And that's fair enough, you know. That that's 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 their choice. I think in America, there's certainly um, a dim view taken in a lot of places. But having said that, there are also very you know very active American physicians on online. I, I don't personally think I'm saying anything um, that is going to come back to bite me. I don't don't tend to get involved with kind of anything personal or anything like that. I do like to take on controversial topics but um uh, again you know i i'm sort of confident in in the kinds of things i'm saying um you know you just mentioned psychedelics that's been something that i've been i've been i think since i've uh, become a consultant last year i feel like that's given me a little bit more ability to to talk about these things freely i think as a trainee um you are slightly beholden to your training committee awarding you your, your final sign off and everything. So I didn't want to be too outspoken, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's all fair game now. <laughs> and nice. What do you find is the biggest difference between, because a lot more academics are getting on Twitter, um, but not that many are doing stuff on YouTube. What do you see the biggest differences in terms of the responses that you get or the sort of audiences that you reach with your work on YouTube? What, YouTube offers clearly is an ability to do much more long form content. And I think in many ways, it's probably more comparable to, to podcasting like, like you guys do. Um, and indeed YouTube is, is slightly, um, kind of scattered in its approach. I always feel that they're trying to chase whatever's hot. So they've really pushed shorts recently because they're trying mm. to chase after the TikTok market and, most cringe-inducing announcement yesterday when they said they're going to they're considering bringing out some NFTs, 
um, which is, I don't know, that's uh, always depressing to hear. But um, I think they know that their strength, I hope at least they know, is still that longer form content. And I think that's what people like. Uh, and, and now we're going to see, my prediction is we're going to see more of that kind of video podcasts on, on YouTube. So I can essentially, I treat my videos as a kind of um, like a, an article and I'll, I'll write them in a similar kind of way and that was my background I came from from writing I, I always thought I wanted to do sort of journalism on the side and I still enjoy in fact the writing is the part of the process that I enjoy most and it's just basically an article that I, I write but then I read it out you know so that that's really the only difference and I think if people thought about it like that then maybe the hurdle to make a video and upload it to YouTube would be lower if you just say, well, you know, you'd, you'd write an article in a, a newspaper and wouldn't think twice about that. Why not just, you know, put it in a video form? Sure, there are much more produced videos with effects and everything, but you don't have to engage in that. And I know YouTube comments get a lot of heat, but actually I find Twitter a much more toxic and mm. less less enjoyable place. And yeah, I think, I think that's 10 years out of date, honestly. Yeah. Um, I, and I think it's got it's got something to do with the the, the algorithm and the comments, uh, how they how they work together. I think if you if uh, pe- people people can thumbs down uh, shitty comments to hell on YouTube, um, and you especially if somebody's got a lot of comments, it's hard to find them. Mm. They just get they just get they're still there, but they just get deprioritized really really heavily, which is weird to think that they haven't got the algorithm between videos right. But at the same time, um, you know, because I mean, a lot of the time there's great comments, um, especially for like watch some engineering videos, especially mm-hmm. like uh, civil and mech eng, um, people who are people who are building stuff. Like the top six comments are people like, hey, this is fine, but you see this website, if you use this circuit or this particular code, so we would actually do a thing. And because the comment is a longer form response and the person who's made it is actually engaging with it, it's got its own sort of like low calorie social media functions mm. involved. And this is I sometimes you learn as much from the comments as you do from the yeah, videos. I think that, that's Although a, that could be my attention span. No, that's a really good point actually. Probably one I hadn't considered that the comments themselves are uh, you can write much more than you can in a tweet for example. So so yeah, that that's very true. And um of course, you know, when I talk about something that attracts m- more of that negative attention like vaccines, for example, then my general approach to most videos, to be honest, is I'll I'll check the comments initially, maybe for the first 24, 48 hours, and those tend to be people who are subscribed. So they tend to be people who are already interested in the kind of stuff you say and and generally not dickheads. But um, after that, that, you know, then you'll start attracting. So anything I've done related to coronavirus, um, you know, occasionally I'll go back a few months later, and it's just it 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 is that kind of kind of awful YouTube comment um, scenario, but it, it is a lot better. And I agree. I you know I've learned a lot from from comments on my own videos, from comments on other videos as well. So there's one phrase which um, uh, I'd, I'd heard in a prediction for 2022 on on YouTube, and I talk to sort of other YouTube friends. Unfortunately, it's one that only works if you say it in an American way, but it's riches in the niches, uh, which um, you know, <laughs> make, 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 makes my uh, skin crawl. Uh, 
Um, <laughs> well, I think riches, riches in the niches is riches a lot of in, the, in the niches. Um, the, yeah, but I, I like the phrase uh, in terms of what it means because I, you know, it's such a big platform that you can you can really concentrate on something quite niche, and you know, occasionally I'll log into YouTube uh in incognito mode you know if i'm so it won't have my login so i'm basically looking at yeah. the, st the stock homepage, and every now and again I i'm reminded of the, the horrors of what mainstream youtube is <laughs> it's yep. you know it's just like oh my god are these my fellow human beings but then the, you know it, it, the algorithm is one of the most sophisticated i think on social media it, it really gives you the stuff that you you want to see and you appreciate so even if you want to make content about something pretty niche something academic some small field you can still do that and actually make that into a a, a legitimate and legitimate's the wrong word but a viable kind of source of income maybe um not um to, to go full-time straight away but the majority of my friends who are youtube creators are, are full-time content creators you know they've they've quit their scientific uh, jobs and a lot of them are from um, engineering backgrounds, biology, th th these kinds of things. And, I, you know, I, th I think it's still a, a really useful, important um, medium. And I think it's going to stay in that way. And, and I think they should stop trying to compete with TikTok and, and concentrate on their strengths. Yeah, uh, and I com completely agree. Um, within the sort of uh, investor biotech moneyed weirdo tech in general space that I live in. There's a video that's gone around right now. I forget the fellow who made it. It's two hours and 32 minutes, and it's a full breakdown of the uh, the economic principles behind cryptocurrency, starting from Dutch tulip mania going forwards. Um, and that's much longer than a regular uh, feature film. That's like some Christopher Nolan shit. Um, but that is and, – and people – People, people who are genuinely intelligent and would not waste your time are recommending it hand over fist, and it's two hours thirty-two. And I saw, I saw that the other day, and the the the, the length of it stuck in my head simply on the basis of that's one hundred and fifty-two minutes, and people are saying that's worth your time. Holy shit! That is a different. That is a different format. Yeah. It's going completely in the other the other direction from everything else getting shorter. Um, with the two 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 things, I told you I was a fan of yours. Um, I saw you, I saw you playing Operation with Tom Scott <laughs> in the the fucking old uh, what's it what's it called the it's the yeah the old operating it, theater forgotten. yeah the old the, the old operating theory playing the the children's game of operations Dan they had tens units the way we used to to, uh, to do, do you remember uh, the electric yes, stems that units. we that used to great. have. <laughs> We, Rowan, we yeah, had we had them. one of those. We had one of those, and Dan and I used to shock each other with it. And I'm like, "This is this is <laughs> some weird worlds colliding shit here." Um, that was that was so much that was so much fun. Um, and uh, people who don't know uh, who Tom Scott is, then you're not a real nerd. Sorry, you're just you just you think you think you are. Here's the aren't. the uber nerds. Yeah, he's he's the he's the fucking uh, like the viceroy of nerds on YouTube. He's a king. I love him. Um, so let's say though, right? We'll put him to one side because everyone's fucking heard of him. Um, I know that like a community evolves really quickly around people who make 
this, like who are in this sort of content producing world, if you had three recos for channels, I mean, I'm I'm going to watch them. This is a totally selfish question. If you had three recos for channels that people would not normally think of, right? Something that's maybe a little bit more obscure or that is niche in the rich or similar that are from things that you seriously rate, let's go. Let's promo them. I'm going to write them down. I will put them in the show notes too, Dan. Tick it off. Oh, man, you're putting me on the spot here. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's the fun part. <laughs> there, are so, there are so many. I don't know how, what do you mean by niche? Like, I mean, that one of my favorite channels is uh, Captain Disillusion, but he's not small anymore. I mean, he's got a big channel now. It's over a million subscribers, um, but uh, he—he's nothing to do with science. Do you want? Do you want something science-related? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah, yeah. Think, think of who our, our our audience are. This is the the fucking horn rim glasses and pocket protector crowd right here. <laughs> um, okay, the science channels. Well, uh, Real Engineering is a, is a friend is run by a friend of mine. Again, that's not a s- small channel, but but excellent. Um, uh, content related to, to engineering i'm trying to uh, let me try and think of some some more um niche stuff i just watched there are a couple of um aussie uh maths and, and physics creators uh and I was, I was just watching um one of their videos yesterday which i just thought was the the what it's a sort of example of what youtube really can be in an ideal world um so she's called uh toby hendry a channel's called tibby's she's i think got a She's, um, I think, uh, maybe did part of a PhD in maths and, and then decided to 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 leave and and sort of become a full time content creator. I think I, I'm not, don't quote me on that. But she makes really wonderful videos about maths that are very unique and inventive. And yesterday, the video I saw actually with my kids was a little animated short film um, about algebra, and it. I know that makes it sound awfully dry, but it was just magical, really wonderful stuff. And she's just done that as a passion project. It probably won't get that many views, but uh, I just thought that was beautiful. And the other the other person who, who's a friend of hers um, is a channel called Up and Atom, uh, who makes kind of maths and physics uh, videos. Uh, and she's another Aussie as well. So um, they're just two that come to mind but yeah you put me on the spot here right if i'd if i'd had a bit of time to prepare i'd give you a no nice no no that's it that's, that's i i see i don't mind you sounding hesitant and confused but i've those, those ones that immediately come to mind are going to be the good ones now i've got one for you while you're here there's one yeah. from uh she's emirati uh and i think she moved to the u.s called belinda Carr, and she has a whole channel that is on building science mm-hmm. civil engineering um so 3D printed, uh, 3D printed bridges. Uh, she's got one really popular video on why building homes and shipping containers is an incredibly stupid idea. Um, like m- massive, massive 3D printing uh, projects. So like full houses, shit like that. Mm. Um, insulation, uh, like rock wool versus fiberglass. Um, the the material science as uh, as it goes into how we construct things. Most of these videos have got I don't know like ten maybe fifty thousand hits, but it is it is everything that you just said. It was like uh, uh, sort of ten or maybe twenty minutes of something that's really concentrated, and I cannot stop watching her goddamn videos because she's obviously very very good. <laughs> 
mm. at at uh the the and the the depth of knowledge, especially like someone. I, I think of it sometimes. You probably have people doing this to your videos, just looking at it like the four chambers of the heart video, just looking at it and going, "Fuck, this is this is complicated." And I'm not really retaining anything. I just like to watch expertise up close. Well, I've got quite uh, a few comments saying people um, listen to me to help them fall asleep. So oh, uh, that, that's quite a common ASMR, comment. ASMR, there you go. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Subgenre. But, uh, he, 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 and, but he has an ASMR video as well, Dan, but you didn't know <laughs> no. that. No. Wow. There we go. I, I, did a, I went in search of the science behind ASMR. Yeah. So um, Yes. And talked to a, a, like the, the leading... Worldwide leading researcher in ASMR. Mm, there is not a lot of research. I had a, some similar sort of crossover with that kind of world um, with some research I did a, a, a couple of years ago on uh, a cutaneous phenomenon. And, yeah, it's, it is tremendously annoying that when it comes to the sort of like the, the gross physiology people think of as kind of, you know, shit that's tremendously out of date. Really, these mm. days, that there still are all of these phenomena that fell off the wagon somewhere, and we never got around to treating them as interesting. Um, is this your goosebumps thing? Yeah, yeah. I still get emails about that every fucking day. Have you heard about that, Ron? Not really. No, I don't think so. James, maybe other listeners haven't um, heard us talk about this, but uh, well, no, I don't. I don't know. Um, I have a tendency not to go deep on research and the. I always feel like the explanation will suck on a podcast. Um, there's a very small subgroup of people, best estimate, one in 200, maybe one in 500, who have the ability to provoke goosebumps primarily on their neck and arms uh, in the same intentional way that you would like move or hold your breath or have any other striated muscle that's under control, even though it's obviously an autonomically mediated phenomenon, they can still like push that button and do that. Mm -hmm. um, and the first survey of any size it wasn't a case study was one that I did uh, a couple of years ago because I found a reference to it in a physiology journal from the 30s. No oh, wow. Um, yeah, I love old journals. Back when you were actually allowed to write the English language <laughs> rather than the kind oh, of constipated, yeah. the constipated patois that passes his research these days. Speaking of which, you're doing a PhD. <laughs> Segway. What's it well, about? Well, so I haven't really announced this publicly, but I'm, I think I'm pretty much done, as in uh, I'm, I've, I've had enough. I've, I've done, um, uh, I, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably explain this at some point. But anyway, the, the, the story of the, the, the subject matter of the PhD um, was using cardiac MRI uh, to look at heart disease. And cardiac MRI is is a, a routine clinical tool now, but there are different levels. So that there's, we had some quite novel, unusual sequences that we were imaging, essentially people having heart attacks, and then looking acutely when they come in, and then six months later and, and identifying sort of key markers that predict a poor outcome. And it was all to do with this phenomenon, which is genuinely absolutely fascinating. And um, it's uh, something, I mean, I'll give you a bit of background because I think it is one of those really interesting areas in research that hasn't produced the the fruit that 
it feels like it should have. So um, we're very good at opening up arteries in heart attacks now. When our artery blocks, you know, you can come into hospital and get it open very fast. And that, that's what I people like me do. But um, so we're preventing the damage occurred by uh, caused by a blocked artery. We've got good at that part of the equation. But once you open the artery, paradoxically, there's further damage that occurs, which is called reperfusion injury. And and when you have blood flowing into hypoxic tissue, then you get a secondary sort of hit of damage, which is often quite considerable. You know, it can really cause a lot of permanent damage to the heart. And that whole phenomenon in itself is very interesting. It's sort of free radical mediated, but it's much more complex than that. And there's a lot of inflammatory change. But there was this phenomenon discovered about 30 years ago called ischemic preconditioning which is where you can reduce the amount of um, reperfusion injury occurring in, in a tissue bed by inducing some transient ischemia in advance. Uh, ischemia meaning lack of, lack of oxygen. And Pre-heart strangling. Yeah. So um, initially this was noted um, by directly occluding the, the vessel in question. So, you know, a, a coronary artery uh, being blocked and then unblocked for sort of every five minutes. Obviously, that's not very practical. So um, it was then found that you could do this just by, say, a blood pressure cuff on the arm. So if you inflate a blood pressure cuff above blood pressure on your arm, so you're causing your the rest of your arm to become ischemic, keep it up for five minutes, deflate it, reinflate it, uh, and do that every five minutes, um, that was found r- repeatedly to... to, to uh, cause a reduction in the size of a heart attack. The problem is that these were heart attacks induced in in animals in animal models in a lab. So you you know you know exactly when the heart attack is going to occur. In real life, you don't. So once the heart attack's already happening, then the question was whether we can um, cause that same reduction in the size of heart attacks. To cut a long story short, that the, the main thrust of my research was in a huge multi-center um, uh, international trial, I was looking at the the MRI sort of subgroup of these patients who, who had that imaging, and it was found that remote ischemic preconditioning didn't actually have a significant effect. And there are many reasons for this. I think the bottom line is medical care has just got pretty good. And so the, the these changes are small, but it's it's... It's interesting because, you know, there's uh, three decades worth of work in this field and this felt like it was a kind of make or break. Um, and uh, so, it's you know, it's disappointing that it was a neutral study. Um, my my personal, you know, side of things, you know, you're asking about my PhD. I, I've just found nothing to do with my supervisors at all who were, who were wonderful, um, lovely people. But I just found I'm not really cut out for academia, and I, I I got very disillusioned with the whole field of academic medicine, and it, it, it's kind of put me off for for life. <laughs> so I I think I you know doing a PhD has made me less inclined to academia than than before. Um, so let's see let's see what happens. Yeah, well, I I know the feeling. Um, I had a lot of conversations uh, about it. Um, I left um, uh, academia for money, and when I did it, I made a tremendous amount of fuss and bother about it because 
generally that's how I live my life and it sort of happened out of reflex more than anything else. But the thing that it resulted in, which is still like something that I'm still sort of dealing with is a lot of people who are in exactly your position or people who'd got substantially more senior than either of us writing to me to say, yeah, fuck, I feel that. Um, This is like, I'm not really happy with what we've done to publication mechanics and what Mm. we've done to the way that um, – the way that work is simply available to be done and we seem to be making access worse and not better and there's lots of people in my field that I don't necessarily like or trust, not because their research is bad, but because I mean, they, they play this game that's so fucking hardball and they're so unpleasant about it because they've internalized that that's the way to be good at it. And yeah, I've had to, I've had to have that conversation a lot. Um, the irony being uh, now that I've quit and I don't give a shit what my H index is, I don't even know anymore. People keep writing to me to collaborate on stuff. Yeah, and you know the Godfather thing. I think I think they'll pull you back in at some point in time. But uh, it's it's so much easier. I tell you, you you may you may find I found this certainly. You may have a sea change thing where when the like the emotional center of it and the practical center of it is all someone else's problem and all you're going to do is help and then you get to like wash your hands yeah and I, have I, a beer agreed you know the the idea of of research is still one that, you know that i think is is fantastic and wonderful but it, it's all that crap i mean you know just look through your episode lists you you go through all these top th- these subjects that that were the ones that were kind of crushing me and whether it's publication bias or, or this, you know, endless, precarious um, life where you're just dependent on spending all your life writing grant applications and all, all these things that academics um, put up with, I, I just felt I, I wasn't able to do any of that. And um, but there is, you know, there is certainly still a part of me that would would love to contribute um, and. Maybe you know. Again, this is a niche that that I can carve out, and I think other people um, maybe lis- listening could could consider as well. Is that there are more than one you know m- different ways to skin a cat, and I guess now I've developed uh, a bit of public outreach or you know um, mm. explaining science, and that in itself uh, can can be beneficial to research. So um, just today I was chatting to a friend who's uh, an economist essentially about whether I might be able to help her with with her research maybe talk about it in in a video so absolutely I I would love to still be useful but I'm with you James in that you know I just now no longer have any interest in what my academic kind of statistics are or anything like that it just is 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 it was just too much and I oh, I don't know. I'm getting it's such, I'm getting it's, a PTSD just talking about it. No, no, it's such a it's it's such an it's such a nice feeling to 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 put it all to one side. I have to every time I have to check something like that, it's just like what writes to me, or I've got to like oh fuck, I I, I shine my CV up every three months just so I don't forget shit I did, which is really the center of the problem. <laughs> um, every time I've got to even look for something like that, it's like I, I feel my eyes just rolling all by themselves, and it's it's very very freeing to be able to just throw it in the big round file and not have to think about yeah. it yeah. anymore. 
the way that the way that Dan gets through this is much more straightforward. I mean, he he moved to a country that has proper research infrastructure. <laughs> he works he, he 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 works he works in an area where there's the intersection of two people, and he knows more about that one thing than the other people that he works with. So he sits on his little pile of krona and he and he smiles his way through it. You and, um, it. That's exactly yeah, but, it. But 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 he will be the first one to tell you. I'm putting words into his mouth here, but we spent an awful lot of time talking. He will be the first one to tell you that he's a lucky, he's a lucky person, um, and that everything that everything that he did, which was a lot, and a lot of it is very good. Even if I, you know, I mean, I annoy you out of reflex, Dan, but a lot of it is very good, um, and it still required like circumstances to really fucking click oh, their yeah. fingers to put you in a place where you're not like several times bolder than you are right now because <laughs> you're just because you're just pulling chunks of it loose <laughs> that's true that's absolutely spot on yeah it just so much circumstance so much timing um people talk about luck all the time but you need luck plus the timing for the things to happen at the right time as well and um that oh, yeah. that's absolutely that's absolutely my 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 research career, but I, I think you hit the nail on it before on that. Like there, there, there are different ways to contribute to academia and to research. Um, I mean, even looking at our own work, James, one of our um, one of our pieces, our preprints, which we never actually bothered publishing, the one on um, uh, water intake and heart rate variability, that's got like a, uh, that's got a ton of citations. That that oh, that, cool. that that wasn't useful in the sense that we never published it. Um, I, I, you know, I can't include it as uh, that was that was the sixth paper. Uh, that was the sixth paper out of my PhD. Um, and we got into a fight with one reviewer. Six papers out of a PhD is pretty good going. That's uh, very good. Yeah, going. That, that was that were only the papers. They were only the papers that I could count. There were others, but I mean, these ones formed the, the center of of everything else. Um, it was the sixth one, and it was under revision during the PhD, and then they bounced it, and I just left it as a fucking preprint because there's a point in time where it's like, and this is probably the thing that got me the most. If I was in your position, Rowan, and like, like this happened, it's like I would parcel parcel all the books up and fire them into the sun. <laughs> uh, it when you when you move something from like one context where it makes sense into another context where it uh, it really needs to be known. Where you're doing the kind of internal popularization of a topic, but you get someone who's from the original research area, and I got I got nitpicked to death on this review. He's like, "Well, you didn't put this in. You didn't put this in. You didn't put this in." He's like, "One, I know all that stuff. Two, anyone who reads it doesn't need to know all that stuff. Yes, I didn't put it in. There's only so much fucking time in the day, uh, and it went to and it went to hard reject after that." Except now, apparently, according to Dan, because I haven't fucking checked, people are citing it because it was useful. You're not mm. allowed to be useful. Everything has to be novel and amazing and straightforward, and yeah. you have to find something. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many hoops to jump through, and and I I, I just you know I I think I'm a pretty chilled, sort of quite resilient kind of person, and and I found that process of you know uh, getting an article rejected, not not sort of traumatic from an emotional point of view, but just such a hassle to then, you know, do this revision and then put it somewhere else. And it's just, you know, every, every step seems to be made particularly difficult. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one example of, of kind of the number it did on me when I was preparing, uh, 
just getting ready for for today's uh, podcast, I w- looked through my I- inbox and I just just thought I'd search for your surname as a way to find the email. And so I looked up Quintana, and the the one that I clicked on by accident was actually some other Quintana that was in my inbox from from ages ago, and it was a, a it was a sort of dressing down from from a a reviewer on a previous study from a paper from the PhD. And just seeing the title and the opening paragraph before immediately realizing it's the wrong email and click. So it was a split second. I could feel like the anxiety build up. And I, I don't really ever mm. consider myself as an anxious person. I, 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 I'm, you know, not t- uh, too bothered by most things. And, and I was shocked the effect it had because I hadn't thought about it for months now. And I have done exactly as James suggested and, you know, had that um, moment of putting everything in the big round file um and, and i felt like it, it, it had been purged but clearly just that little appearance in my inbox and that was all it took to like immediately just have a flashback to to, to all of that so i don't have any re- regrets uh and i spent those years that i was doing the research achieving lots of other things that are very important in life so i i don't um regret doing it but uh it's definitely been a, 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 a very significant um, few years in my life, yeah. But I mean, hey, on balance, your science communication stuff on YouTube is going to get 10 times, 100 times more views than, the, the, than you would with academic papers. Um, you know, I find the exact same thing, like a, a video explaining meta-analysis has... R- really, really, Dan, 10, 100? <laughs> I just looked it up. Look, I, want, I want you to guess, Dan, the, uh, the Medlife Crisis uh, channel view count right now. Millions. A hair under 35 million. Yeah, that sounds um, right. Right. So when it comes to, when it comes to like dissemination stuff, there really is, it's, it's not the same. Different, it's different cate- It's categorically well, different. Wasn't there some sort of research itself published that, the amount of people that read the average published scientific paper is something like three. Yeah. Uh, have I have I made that up or no, I, I remember I reading? No, 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 no. There's lots of there's lots of this is a scientometric question. It's, yes, James has turned to be a boring fuck. Um, there's lots of there's lots of research in this. Um, there's a couple of big problems with the research, especially when it comes to the citation stuff. One is that uh, a lot of research that is in a real journal, in quotation marks, uh, it's not really designed to be read. It's simply designed to e- exist. Mm. Oh, so yeah. saying like the modal, the modal or the median. Uh, paper doesn't have any citations, doesn't have a lot of accesses, etc., cetera, um, is, uh, is a feature rather than a bug. Mm, um, point, yeah. it's, it's easier to, because I mean, a, a lot of it's shit also, uh, people would prefer it to exist, but for you to not read it. Um, and everyone is completely sleeping on just how many bad journals, uh, gray literature that still somehow manages to be registered for ISSNs and get DOIs, et cetera, et cetera. So it becomes a real publication um if you wash that out the story is a little better but it's also really highly dependent on the area Mm. um and where where things are situated in the world so it's not quite that dire um i forget all the figures on this i haven't looked at it for a couple of years it's not quite that dire when you think about like english language research in uh, a journal that someone would actually recognize 
Um, I would imagine the meeting is probably about 150, okay. something like that. Christ knows how many people actually read the whole fucking thing. Mm. But there's only so much you can do from, from access uh, as well. The one thing that we absolutely very definitely do know is that uh, reads and accesses and citations in particular are dramatically changed by open access. Mm. Uh, course, yeah. there's, all sorts, there's all sorts of fights around, um, you know, well, how, how do we get it? How do we support it? How do we pay for it? Which we've covered in probably at this point in time, it feels like about 70,000 previous episodes. But <laughs> the one thing, that's total, one thing that's totally undeniable is that the more accessible it is, the better it works. On that note, we are going to wrap up this, uh, this episode of Everything Hurts. Rowan, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to post all the links to your social media accounts and the videos that, um, that we were speaking about. But uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see you online and we're looking forward to, uh, to the rest of the work that you're going to be doing. Well, thanks very much, guys. It was a real pleasure. And you know, you've had some fantastic guests, so I was, I was very happy to take part. <laughs>